This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Karen Abbott discusses her new American history book, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy. Then PW marketing manager Brian Kinney highlights some upcoming PW webcasts and events. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. So we've got a bunch of new stuff on the fiction side. Uh, We have a, a new number one. It's just The Long Way Home by Louise Penny. Uh, we called it a perceptive and perfectly paced mystery. Mm. It's the 10th mystery featuring Chief Inspector Armand Gamache of the Quebec Sûreté. And uh, it's oh, about... Right. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's quite an interesting series. Uh, and uh, it, it starts out with a, uh, an estranged couple attempting to reconcile, um, but then uh, the the husband or the ex-husband fails to show up uh, and the wife decides to turn to the inspector and ask for some assistance in finding him. And uh, PW says that at times the prose is remarkably fresh, filled with illuminating and delightful turns of phrase. For example, Clara notices her own ego showing some ankle. But readers should also be prepared for the breathless sentence fragments that litter virtually every chapter. Oh. So that's at number one, uh, The Long Way Home by Louise Penny. At number six. Oh, I'm sorry. And did she's you... had a couple of, I, I mean, she's had, she's one of the few people who set books and novels in Quebec. Uh, and I don't know, I remember, actually, my mom likes to read these books quite a bit, as she is from Quebec. Ah, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. yeah, you know, my mother always said that the best way to prepare for a trip to somewhere new is to read a mystery set there, because you get all the back alleys. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, sure. as long as it's well-researched, of course, but uh, certainly I've never heard any complaints about Penny's books and that. Right, and as I'm heading to Sicily for uh, Publishers Weekly to cover Sicilian book publishing. Uh, I've been reading, and well, I've talked about him. I talk about him a lot. Andrea Camilleri, who's mm-hmm. a Sicilian mystery writer who I like, who I read every summer. Yeah, it's so true. What your mom said is true. So, going a little bit further down the fiction list, at yep. number six is Close to Home by Lisa Jackson. Uh, a haunted house provides the stage for this exciting novel of romantic suspense. Uh, Jackson is a multi-mega bestseller. Her books are always on the bestseller list. Mm-hmm. She just really knows how to how to blend the romantic tension with the, the suspense tension. Um, and you know, for readers not familiar with the romantic suspense genre, usually it's a person in trouble and a person who's investigating the case mm-hmm. um, who become emotionally closer as they uh, work to 
solve a mystery or protect right. one another from danger. And so uh, in this particular one, uh, there's a woman who's divorced and decides to make a fresh start by moving back to her abandoned childhood home. She has two daughters, and when young girls in a nearby town mysteriously vanish, she fears for their safety. Uh, and so uh, she works with uh, her ex-boyfriend, mm-hmm. uh, from whom, of course, she has hid some important secrets, to try and figure out what's going on, and and that also leads to their romantic reconnection. Oh, wow. So it's at number six, Close to Home, mm-hmm. by Lisa Jackson. Uh, it's all about my, my sections this week. We've got romance, and now we've got fantasy as well. At number nine is The Broken Eye by Brent Weeks. Um, this is the third installment of his epic, 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 epic <laughs> fantasy series, uh, The Lightbringers. And uh, these are... Uh, the the system of magic in these books is built around color and light and so um in the one of the main characters is now colorblind mm-hmm. which effectively limits his ability to interact with magic and of course there is a prophecy and um many machinations to try and figure out who's going to succeed him now that he can't uh work with the colors anymore and uh his uh, his father works with a council of wizards who work in solidified colors of light um, while his son is trying to figure out how to uh, find his place in the military um, going off in entirely different directions. So we have this family connection um, as well as larger political questions. It's epic. It's epic. <laughs> Uh, and uh, our, our review says that Weeks is fond of complicated schemes and his plot feels like an orchestrated chess match between genius grandmasters, but he leavens the logic with humor and his characters are charming, even as they are threatened with being swept off the chessboard. Oh, wow. And how many has he had? Um, this is the third book okay. in, in the series. And, but, you know, you really need to have read the, the first two, yeah. but clearly plenty of people have because uh, this hit the bestseller list at number nine with nearly 6,000 copies sold and it's first week. And I just wanted to go a little bit further down uh, to number 16, Heroes Are My Weakness by Mm -hmm. Susan Elizabeth Phillips. We gave this a starred review. Um, It's a kind of Christmassy holiday romance title um, with an an entertaining twist. I assume you've you've read Stephen King's Misery or uh, or seen the movie uh, with the magnificent Kathy Bates just outdoing herself. So um, this is kind of a a misery-like setup, except it goes off in an entirely different direction, a much more cheerful romantic direction. Action. Um, there's uh, there's you know still an isolated cottage in Maine and it's snowy uh, and and there's a reclusive author who lives in the house on the hill and so forth. Uh, but the female lead is a 33 year old ventriloquist, which is not uh, that sounds scary. Not a profession right. uh, that that you tend to see a lot of in in novels. And, right. Um, and so she uh, goes back home to this this island and ends up getting to know. Uh, this author, uh, not least because a woman she knows is working as his housekeeper and helping to uh, to raise her her mute four year old daughter. So lots ah, of lots okay. of complicated stuff sure, going on sure. here. When you um, said ventriloquist, I thought horror. It just came. Yeah, to mind. no, it, it does. A little, yeah, yeah, little creepy, right? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, this right. is this is very much this this is different. This is yeah, more like the yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Sesame Street puppet. 
deposits. Got it. Got type, it. Type of thing. Right. Um, and uh, there, what's interesting about this particularly is that there are many hints and references to Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Mm. And so um, that does create a sometimes tense atmosphere. Uh, and certainly the, the author is, we say, the stereotypical brooding hero. Um, but Annie is much more independent than her counterpart. As she learns about her past, she uses her talents to help her friend's daughter overcome her trauma. Um, and she also investigates some mysterious occurrences that are trying to drive her off the island. So there's a lot going on in here. Um, as I said, we gave it a starred review. We thought it was a really just great combination right. of factors um, and details of small town New England life just round out this powerfully successful homage. Wow, sounds wonderful. So that is on the fiction hardcover list down at number 16. Well, uh, in nonfiction, we, we don't have very many uh, debuts. We do have one I want to, well, one I want to start with, and that's at number 38, mm-hmm. a little far down the line, but this is uh, Webster's New World College Dictionary, fifth edition. It's on our bestseller list, and there's always been, you know, recently, the last few years, decade, maybe, to talk about um, reference books not selling as well. And here we see just in time for college. I was going to say school starting. School starting or or maybe many new copy editors just starting their positions <laughs> right before uh, the fall. Uh, well, Gone out to buy <laughs> you know, this, I, this copy. When, when, I, when I started at college, um, I've a friend of my mother's gave me an American Heritage Dictionary, which I still have mm-hmm. and and still really actually treasure. And that's possibly one of the nerdiest things I've ever said in my life. But, um, <laughs> you know, there is there is something about a really lovely, well-written dictionary. Sometimes, yeah. you know, Google is great and, and um, Merriam-Webster's website is terrific and I use them all the time. But sometimes you just kind of want to flip through and meet words you never would have met any oh. other way. Really nice way of saying that. I can see that, though. I can see that. There's something very tactile about Mm -hmm. just flipping through. Almost like discovering something new. Exactly. Ah, right. Exactly. Kind of like we used to play word games. Yeah. So the next one, our number one book, uh, is a a cookbook. And this is uh, part of a trend that's been going on. uh, And these are uh, uh, kind of blog-to-book cookbooks. Um and recently, Joy Bean uh, wrote an article. One of our uh, uh, one of our writers wrote an article that was uh, that came out in Cooking the Books called "Giving Hungry Fans What They Want: Four Big Web to Cookbook Releases for Fall." And the one that is at number one, uh, about fifteen thousand copies sold, is a hundred days of real food: how we did it, what we learned, and a hundred easy, wholesome recipes your family will love by Lisa Leak. In a quote for the article, uh, quoting Lisa Leak, she says, I saw Michael Pollan on Oprah and he was talking about where food comes from. Once you hear that information, you can't unlearn it and it changed my life. So uh, this is about books that, you know, she started this website um, and this was when she saw this was a uh, was a wake-up call in 2010 mm-hmm. to how she was going to eat and so she decided to do a 100-day 100 100-day 100 pledge just to see if she could do it, just to eat wholesome uh, foods and this is it and the, a book came out of this. And so let me just talk a little bit about the other uh, three books on this that we will, I'm assuming, going to be seeing on one list, either our nonfiction or our um, 
cookbook list. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seriously Delish, uh, 150 recipes for people who totally love food. This is uh, from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Uh, Jessica Merchant, she's the creator of How Sweet Eats. Uh, and she began blogging way back in 2009. And this is a cookbook that's come from that. And another one is The Kitchen. That's K-I-T-C-H-N cookbook, Recipes, Kitchens, and Tips to Inspire Your Cooking. Uh, And this was a website that was launched in 2005. And uh, the founding editor, Sarah Kate uh, uh, Gillingham, was doing all the writing for this. And then she got four other writers to, to help out. And that was one, two, three. Was that it? No, here we go. The Skinny Taste Cookbook, Light on Calories, Big on Flavor. Uh, another Clarkson Potter book, the last one was due. And this is from uh, Gina uh, Homolka. Uh, she's the creator of SkinnyTaste.com, and which she began blogging in 2008. So these have been going on for a few years, uh, building up uh, readers and um and that's what we have. So those four, those four, so the, well, the one, and then three others, we, I'm sure we're going to be seeing on some sort of list, or at least in popularity. All right. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye out for this. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Karen Abbott tells us about four amazing women who made history during the Civil War. We'll be right back. Hello, my name's Gabriel Weston, author of Dirty Work, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Karen Abbott on the line. Her new book is Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy. Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your new book, which takes place in the Civil War. You set the stage for us. Well, it's um, the story, a true story, of four women, two for the North, two for the South, who sort of lied, stealed, cheated, avenged, drank, shot, and murdered their way through the Civil War. Um, I was interested in, in looking at the Civil War in a different way. Um, I was inspired by uh, the time I had spent in Atlanta, and one day I was stuck in traffic behind a pickup truck that had a bumper sticker that said, Don't blame me. I voted for Jeff Davis. Um, <laughs> and it sort of got me thinking about the Civil War and, and what roles women played. And uh, and some, you know, did things like darning socks and sewing uniforms for soldiers, and others uh, tried to... Uh, became sort of informal recruiting officers and uh, sort of bribed their men into enlisting into the Army. And a few ladies decided to do something more and, and put their lives on the line and for their cause, and, and I was interested in them. So tell us about who, who exactly these characters are, the liar, the temptress, the soldier, and the spy. Uh, let's go from north to south. Well, the first lady I came upon for the north was uh, Emma Edmonds, who was actually Canadian. And mm. she had a bit of a tragic upbringing. Um, her father had wanted sons to help on the family farm. And, of course, Emma was a disappointment when she came along. And as she got older, her father arranged a marriage for her. And she had seen what this did to her sisters. Her father had done uh, the same thing to her older sisters. And Emma craved a life of excitement. She wanted to uh, go on the road and, and have a, a, a adventures for herself. And so one night she cut off her hair, bound her breasts, uh, changed her dress for a men's suit and started calling herself Frank Thompson and uh, emigrated to the United States and um, started hearing about John Brown, uh, the abolitionist and the drumbeat leading up to the Civil War. And she decided to enlist in the Union Army, uh, calling herself Private Frank Thompson. So she was a woman serving uh, in the Union Army. 
Um, and the other union spy is Elizabeth Van Lu, who uh, was sort of in a really difficult position. She's living in the Confederate capital of Richmond, and she's a staunch abolitionist. She had spent a lot of time up north and was educated up north. And when she came back, um, her father had passed, gave her a large inheritance, and she began freeing family slaves and even um, purchasing slaves for the express purpose of freeing them. And she had, these opinions were dangerous. It was very dangerous to uh, be an abolitionist in Richmond during the Civil War, of course. And she she wrote in her diary of Confederate detectives following her and people trying to entrap her and, and the death threats she received. Um, but she continued with her plans to build a union spy ring in Richmond. And I think her biggest accomplishment was placing one of the family's former slaves inside the Confederate White House. Um, wow. Of course, it was illegal for, for uh, you know, anybody to teach a slave to read or write in the South at the time. And so nobody knew that this former slave was not only literate, but highly educated and had a photographic memory. So while the Confederate President Jefferson Davis is leaving maps and battle plans and um, having chats with uh, advisors, uh, she's listening and picking up all of this and passing it on to Elizabeth. That sounds really intense. And uh, <laughs> what about the, the liar and the temptress? Oh, well, the the title is sort of a reference to all of them. Um, At each point, and and often at the same time, each woman was a liar, a temptress, a soldier, and a spy in their own way. So it's sort of, sort of, uh, you know, with apologies to John LaCroix, uh, you know, the title applies to all four of the ladies. Hmm. So talk talk to us about the, uh, the two women from the South. And I, I take it they were they were uh, uh, working or uh, in, in part of the Southern uh, Army, of the Confederate Army. Well, the, the first lady was uh, Belle Boyd. She was actually a 17-year-old um, when the war broke out. And she was fascinating to me. She was sort of comic relief. She was all id and uh, had no censor and, and was, you know, uh, very overt, both in her um, sexuality and her opinions. It was sort of like if uh, Miley Cyrus and Sarah Palin had a 19th century baby. Wow. <laughs> it would have been Belle Boyd. <laughs> um, she was just really out there with both, uh, you know, her sexuality and just it had no filter. Um, and she kicks things off in uh, July 4th, 1861. She's living in the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia, and the Union Army had just won a small conflict around that area and came down to her hometown of Martinsburg and was planning on a big victory parade for the 4th of July. And they started plundering the town, stealing alcohol, breaking into homes, just making a general mess of things. And Belle was waiting for them. Um, and they came to her home and barged in, and um, they threatened to raise a federal flag over her house. So Belle's mother stepped forward and says, gentlemen, everyone in this house will die before I let a flag be raised, a federal flag be raised over this house. And one of the men goes after her mother, and Belle fatally shoots him. She she shoots this Union soldier dead right there in her home yeah. and um, gets away with it. And this sort of emboldens her, and she becomes a, a courier and spy for the Confederate Army. Wow. Uh, and, and the uh, next spy is uh, Rose O'Neill Greenhow. It was sort of the opposite of Elizabeth Van Lu. She's uh, 40 years old, living in Washington, D.C., and she's an ardent Confederate sympathizer. Um, and her entire life had sort of fallen apart in the years leading up to the war. She lost five children in four years. Um, her husband died in a freak accident. Uh, she lost her access to the White House. She had been very good friends with Democratic politicians and had even um, served as an advisor to President James Buchanan. They were very close friends. And so with the election of Lincoln, everything sort of fell apart. Mm. And uh, in the spring of 1861, a Confederate captain asked her to run a Confederate spy ring in Washington, D.C., and Rose jumped at the chance. You know, this was her chance to sort of try to regain her old life. 
Um, and he quickly began cultivating sources. Um, and by cultivating, I mean sleeping with <laughs> um, various high-ranking union politicians, um, including one Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts, who served as the chairman of uh, Lincoln's chairman of the Committee on Military Affairs. Uh, so you can imagine the sort of interesting pillow talk they had. I'm sure. <laughs> So it, it sounds like a lot of this information obviously would not have been public. How how did you find out about these four women and all of their exploits? Uh, well, luckily, there's just a treasure trove of information uh, on the Civil War. Three of the women wrote memoirs, um, and Elizabeth Van Lu wrote a diary that, that was never published, but it's in scattered pages all over the New York Public Library. It was sort of interesting to try to piece those together. Um, but, but a couple of them, you know... Uh, Paradoxically, you know, when you're a spy, you sort of want to keep a low profile, but um, a couple of them really sought out attention and, and wanted the spotlight. Um, Belle Boyd, in particular, was very boastful about her exploits and, you know, talked about um, Stonewall Jackson. She was sort of obsessed with the Confederate General Stonewall Jackson, for example, and would tell people that she wanted to, quote, occupy his tent and share his dangers. Um, and uh, and and sort of was really conspicuous in her behavior. And Rose O'Neill Greenhow uh, had a very high profile victory for the Confederacy in the early in the war. Um, she provided a crucial piece of information for the first Battle of Bull Run, which was the first major land battle of the war. And it was really fascinating how she did this. Uh, she assembled a team of couriers, and one of them was a 16-year-old girl by the name of Betty Duvall. And Rose brings Betty over to her home and has a piece of encrypted information. She had a cipher, and she uh, had information from her union sources. And she wraps this up in a little black piece of silk and tucks it into Betty's hair so, and wraps Betty's hair up in a bun and gives her a simple dress and says, you know, pretend you're a simple farm girl coming home from the market and you'll be able to pass through the lines and go on to Confederate General Headquarters of, of a PGT Beauregard. And so Betty did exactly that and, and gets across the lines and lets down her hair in the dramatic fashion and hands over this piece of information that helps the Confederacy win the first really big battle of the war. So... You've, so you've selected these four women. I'm assuming there are plenty of other, many other women who who uh, were active in the war. Um, how, how did you decide on these four? Was it because that this, there was mo that they had, you know, three of them? I think you had said had written memoirs, or that there was more information on them. Well, it's a good question, and and definitely the um, the amount of information available does factor into it. Since you know, writing nonfiction, right, but, right. Um, <laughs> but it was also I, I wanted the stories to be able to weave together. I wanted to present a tapestry, a sort of story of the Civil War as it hasn't been told before, and and um, and, and in a way that that connected. Um, I, I wanted them the stories to make sense together. And these women, even though they they weren't physically interacting all the time, although Bell and Rose do meet. Um, they were in the same cities a lot. Um, they ran into the same people quite frequently. And there was a cause and effect to their actions. Um, you know, one woman's behavior would affect another circumstances. Uh, for example, you know, Rose Greenhouse spying on the Union Army. And Emma Edmonds, the, the woman who's disguised as a man, um, is fighting in the Union Army. And, and Rose is literally watching her drill on Capitol Hill. Um, and Rose's uh, spying behavior, of course, affects the fates of the Union Army that, that Emma's fighting for. And Emma was on the front lines of, of many bloody battles. So it's sort of all connected. Um, the stories touched each other in interesting ways. Huh. So 
Emma got away as a spy and as a soldier um, because uh, at the time women just weren't wearing trousers. It was probably fairly easy for her to to pass. Um, What other customs of the time made it both easier and harder for these women to do what they did? Um, well, definitely the the idea that women women they couldn't fathom women wearing pants was was definitely a, a large part of it. Also, uh, many of the women who enlisted were were young, um, you know, and so and so many of the men were enlisted were young too. So it didn't sort of strike anybody as strange if if, if somebody had a high pitched voice or if somebody had um, no facial hair. Um, they could just pass themselves off as a young boy who hadn't really transitioned into being a man yet. Um, and luckily for Emma and for the other women who enlisted. Uh, they all went to bed clothed, even with their boots on, to, to save time to get up for drills in the morning and uh, to take care of the necessities, as they called, you know, going to the bathroom. They, would all, they wouldn't go to the latrines. I think they tried to avoid the latrines as much as possible and would, you know, wander off into the woods. So mm-hmm. uh, there, there wasn't really a lot of opportunity to see people unclothed, um, and, and Emma, you know, uh, was able to take advantage of that. And how about the others? Um, you mentioned certainly a, a lot of sleeping around. I don't think people tend to think of the, the 19th century as this very uh, licentious time. So uh, how, how did these women get away with that? You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the you know rabbit holes of research you fall down into when you're doing nonfiction and, and sort of, uh, you know, things that aren't pertaining to the mainstream at hand, but nevertheless fascinating, um, was how courtship changed um, during the Civil War. And, of course, in diaries, Southern women only admitted to flirting uh, because they wanted to maintain their genteel exteriors, at least um, in writing. But but it really changed. You know, in the antebellum years, women um, had a a very stringent process by which a mate was selected. Um, You know, potential mates had to present a formal letter of introduction. They had to uh, meet neighbors and acquaintances. They had to um, chaperone dates. But once all the men left, you know, the, the fathers were gone, the brothers were gone, the, um, uh, you know, the husbands were gone, the fiancés were gone, and women sort of had a newfound freedom. And were doing things that they never would have done before, or doing things only they would have done with their with their, their fiancé or their husband. Um, and, and this sort of, uh, you know, presented not only a newfound freedom, but, but a likelier chance of heartbreak. It was sort of the idea of, of romantic love changed during the Civil War, and, and uh, what women could do with their sexuality. Huh. That sounds very similar to what happened in, in World War II in, in some ways, is that they're, uh, though, though in a different sphere, that the women were working in factories and so forth, and then the men all came back and said, no, no, back into the home. <laughs> Was there a similar sort of reaction like that post-Civil War? Oh, definitely. I think uh, one of the most interesting uh, sort of um, discoveries or, or things I realized during the research was that how fundamentally women's roles changed after the Civil War. Um, there were 60,000 widows left um, wow. and, and women who never were able to marry again. So um, people became spinsters and sort of adopted the idea that, you know what, I don't care. There's no longer a stigma. Um, you know, people can call me an old maid, but I don't care. And, and that sort of lost a little bit of its stigma. And also, you know, thousands of men came home um, as amputees and weren't able to work. Uh, and so women had to take charge of the households and many became the breadwinners and, and the sort of dynamic shifted. And, and so that, and that's something that carried through. And um, even with the idea of suffrage, um, I think women were frustrated by the fact that they had no influence over the, the how the battles were waged and all the political uh, shenanigans during the Civil War. And hence, many of them entered spying. It was the way they can control something that they, they wanted to help control what happened. Um, but 
but I, but I think all of that influenced the push to suffrage and sort of the mm-hmm. you know modernization of, of women's roles. We're going to take a quick break, so don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Karen Abbott, author of Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy. Karen, at what point did you know you had a book? You know, I've been thinking about this book for since uh, I lived in Atlanta, um, which has, you know, been 2001, um, and, you know, realized that the Civil War is still much, very much alive down here. I'm talking to you right now from Mississippi. So oh, wow. um, I actually, I had somebody last night at an event tell me that their third grade teacher um, had insisted that the South actually won. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this book for, for quite a long time. And once I found these four women, um, and their voices just sort of leap, leapt off the page and, uh, their, their behavior to me was so brazen. And I kept asking myself, how did they dare? Um, how did they get away with this? And, and that sort of, sort of fueled me. Hmm. What's it like talking about this in the South going down to, you said Mississippi, and I'm sure your tour is taking you to other places around there. Yeah, you know, it's been really great, uh, you know, people coming up and telling me about their Confederate ancestors and, and um, you know, and the, the relics that are left over, and I can never get enough of those sorts of stories. Um, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to tell me that their relative was a spy. <laughs> so uh, it's, um, and, and the research had done that, too. I, one of my favorite uh, pieces of research was um, from the, the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, um, and the curator there showed me these dolls that um, Civil War women, era women used to use. Um, they would put quinine, which was a, a, a very scarce medicine. It was much needed to combat malaria, but um, it got very scarce as the war went on. And they would stuff these dolls full of quinine and, and give them to their little daughters and say, you know, cross the lines and don't say a word. We need to get these to the Confederate soldiers. Um, and so just sort of uh, stories like that, that that aren't in the history books. Wow. That's, that's a type of drug smuggling I had not heard of before. Yeah. Pretty ingenious, yeah. Yeah, definitely. What other kinds of research did you do for the book? I spent a lot of time in the National Archives. Um, it was there that I actually found the um, black piece silk scrap that I had mentioned earlier um, mm-hmm. that Rose Greenhow used to wrap up her note in, and it was just, you know, this remarkable feeling. It's it's the most thrilling feeling to feel something in your hand, uh, this sort of visceral thrill um, when you're holding a piece of history. You know, this, this spy uh, had this in her hand 150 years ago, and it's just sort of... Uh, amazing to to have that in your hand as well, and just the little tidbits um, of of these women that make their characters come to life. Um, one of Belle Boyd's spying techniques involved her little dog. Um, she would place dispatches on top of the dog's back and then wrap another false dog skin, like a hide, around him. <laughs> and and nobody knew that you know that this second hide was concealing messages on top of this dog. So just sort of really strange uh, things that these ladies came up with. So you seem to be interested in specific periods. And going back, your first book was uh, Sin of the Second City, Madame's uh, Madame's, uh, Ministers, Playboys, and the Battle for America's Soul. 
Yes, it was uh, the true story of two mysterious sisters who uh, ran the most opulent, famous brothel in the world at the turn of the 20th century in Chicago. And uh, this sort of progressive era culture war that, that tried to shut them down and tried to shut the red light districts all across the country down. And, um, you know, the, this brothel attracted, uh, you know, famous names from across the world. And the interesting thing about those sisters was they, they were very proud of their profession and their roles in, in the red light district. And their idea was to elevate the profession to make it respectable um, and to provide women with uh, medical care and good wages. And um, there was actually a waiting list to work at this brothel. So uh, that, that was a whole uh, other fascinating journey into history. And your second book was uh, about another fascinating woman, Gypsy Rose Lee. Um, and what is it about these women that, that draw you in that sort of demand to have their stories written for a modern audience? Well, Gypsy was interesting to me because I didn't think it was so much a biography as sort of a, a microcosm of 20th century America. Um, her life spanned um, all of the, and sort of touched upon all the major events of the, of the 20th century. And to me, it was the, the dark side of the American dream in, in a really um, fascinating way. It was sort of like Horatio Alger meets Tim Burton. <laughs> um, and... and uh, I think that her her life story was so different from the one that people know and from what they've seen on Broadway, and uh, that she sort of deserved a second look. And and uh, I think I actually said to Publishers Weekly before that you know I, I write about women whose lives I wish I lived, and and I'm jealous mm. of all of them, and that's certainly true. So how, how do you find your subjects? I mean, you told us about how you came across while you were driving for um, uh, Liar Tentress Soldier Spy, and you saw the bumper sticker. Uh, and what about the other two? You know, it's uh, my grandmother, um, who just turned 96, uh, actually was the inspiration for, for my first two books. Um, her One of her ancestors disappeared in Chicago around the same time the Everly Club was operating. And if I started digging into that time period and realized, well, a lot of girls are disappearing. Um, and I also came across a story about uh, Marshall Field Jr., the department store as, um Magnet, uh, his son got shot, and the rumor was that he got shot in a brothel um, called the Everly Club. And, and so I sort of went off on that tangent, like what was happening to these disappearing girls and um, the idea of white slavery and how they were all getting kidnapped and sold into prostitution. Um, and for Gypsy, my grandmother told me that her cousin um, had seen Gypsy Rosalie perform in 1935. Wow. And apparently the cousin said uh, Gypsy took 15 minutes to peel off a single glove and that she was so damn good at it, he gladly would have given her 15 more. <laughs> um, so it just got me thinking, who could make the simple act of peeling off a glove so interesting that one might be compelled to watch this for a full half hour? Um, and then I started digging into Gypsy's archives and found a telegram um, from Eleanor Roosevelt to Gypsy Rosalie uh, that said, may your bare ass always be shining. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I thought that was great. Anybody who can get a telegram like that from Eleanor Roosevelt definitely, uh, definitely deserves a, a book about her. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, had there been much written about Gypsy Rosalie? There had been no no objective biography. There had just been Gypsy's memoir, which of right. course left out all of the really dark um, material from her mother. Uh, you know, she famously said, um, "I had to make mother a punchline. I had to make her a joke, or else nobody would want to hear my mm -hmm. stories about her." Mm -hmm. um, so she made her mother much funnier and, and sort of whitewashed all of the uh, the the things that had gone on between them. And I would sit in Lincoln Center, um, where Gypsy's papers are in, in New York City and read the back-and-forth letters between her and Mama Rose, and it was so vitriolic um, and so all over the place. It was sort of like... Uh 
honey, you are the, the most wonderful daughter I could ever have. Oh, please write to me. I just, I can't live without you. And in the next letter, it is like, you are a, a ungrateful, horrible, but, you know, and, and, and the sort of back and forth, I would leave there just sort of um, uh, almost physically sick uh, from, from what I read. And, and I, I just, it, it, things that had never been published before. And I, I really wanted to tell that story. Now, you had just talked about you were at the uh, Lincoln Center. The, you, I'm, uh, I'm assuming the uh, public library branch at Lincoln Center. Uh, yes. You were at the National Archive. What, uh, it's kind of a nuts and bolts uh, question. What balance have you found between researching and, and actual writing? That's a, a good question. When I, I discussed often with uh, writer friends and fellow nonfiction writers, um, I know so many people who need to do all of their research and then they can only start writing. But I need to do it as I go along mm. um, because as the story sort of evolves, you, you start seeing what's going to be important and what's not. And uh, there's nothing worse than spending maybe you know a month going off into some tangent that you think is going to be important and suddenly you get to that point in the story and decide, you know what, that, that deserves a paragraph. That doesn't deserve a chapter. Um, so I really try to uh, simultaneously write and research, um, and I, I think that's partly a, a, a journalism background thing. Um, but And one of the things I was really fortunate about this time around was connecting with um, one of Elizabeth Van Lu's relatives. Um, her brother John had two daughters, and I talked to the great-grandson of one of these daughters, and he gave me some great insight into her operation that had never been told before. And, and um, so that was probably, you know, the best piece of research. And, and he really helped me along as, as I was writing and figuring out what was really important about her story. So do you have any advice for um, authors out there who are interested in taking a turn at nonfiction? I feel like a lot of the advice that we get for writers is all about tell your story and how to write fiction, basically. <laughs> nonfiction requires a whole different set of skills. As you said, there's a lot of journalism in it. Um, obviously, you you do a lot of traveling, for example, um, yeah. and, and interviewing people. Um, how does one get started going down that path? Well, I think... If you want to write narrative nonfiction, if you want to write a story, if you want to write something that could maybe be mistaken for a novel, um, I think the most important thing is chronology. If you're telling a story in chronological order or in the you know the way events happens and building suspense as it actually unfolds and would unfold in real life, mm-hmm. you know you're doing most more than what most historians would do or what most people who who might write academic uh, nonfiction would do. Um, and the second thing is the details. Um, you, re- you really need to do the research in order to get the details. You know, you can't try to be funny. You can't try to be poignant. You can't try to be smart. You have to let the details be smart and funny and poignant for you. You have to find those details that do the work for you. So um, I, I think those are the, the, the two main components if, if you're trying to write um, nonfiction that, that tells a story. We've been talking with Karen Abbott. You can find her book, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, in stores right now. Karen, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Marketing Manager Brian Kinney welcomes you to the wide world of PW podcasts, webcasts, and events, so stay tuned. Hey, I'm Rudy Rasmus, the author of Love, Period, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Marketing Manager Brian Kinney is here to tell us all about PW's events calendar for the fall. 
Hey there, Brian. Hey, guys. How are you? Hi, we're doing great. It's very nice to have you here. This is a first. It is a first, and I'm extremely excited to be on, so thank you for having me. PW Radio is uh, is part of a whole family of things. I, I think a lot of our listeners might not know that, that we, we do a lot of other broadcast-type stuff, podcasts and webcasts, and uh, I'm not sure I even know what else there is. So, <laughs> so first of all, can you just give us like the 10,000-foot the overview of... Everything you do, go. Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know if we have enough time to talk about that, but I will do my best. Um, so, yes, Rose, um, as you pointed out, we do have a full podcast series. Starting off, we actually have two editorial podcasts, um, and all of our podcasts are actually online on publishersweekly.com. Additionally, also on iTunes. Um, so we've got more to come, which is a comics world, comics and graphic novels podcast. We have a week ahead with... CCC and Publishers Weekly, um, which gives you some insider publishing information. And then, obviously, as you both know, but maybe some of our listeners do not know, we actually have a full series of additional podcasts, which are just a great way for our listeners to meet some amazing authors. And these podcasts are about 15 minutes talking about new books that have been written by authors. And they range from, you know, lifestyle to romance to kids to uh, fiction and to religion and self-help faith cast is what we call that one as well. Um, and those, like I said before, are all available on publishersweekly.com. And so these podcasts are a great way, like I said, if you want to get some insider information or some additional information about maybe characters or plots in the book that you might not get to read about. Um, so I definitely recommend anyone interested in those to take a look at those or a listen, I should probably say. But speaking of looking, we actually have a full series of webcasts and we have some amazing webcasts um, and they also range in a variety of different topics. We have um, anything from technology to children's to romance to YA. Um, Rose and Mark, you both have um, hosted some of our our uh, webcasts. Um, so. And I've got one coming up in a yeah. little bit later in the month. You beat me to the punch there, Rose. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. We have a new adult one coming up. So, you know, as far as what we have online, these are some great, great um, ancillary products to the PW brand um, that are definitely worth checking out. And I should point out, they're all free. Mm -hmm. So feel free, once again, publishersweekly.com on that. In addition to that, uh, we do a discussion series over at Random House, which is temporary quarterly, looking to uh, beef that up some more. So that will range on a variety of topics with a panel discussion. So keep a lookout for those as well. Um, and then obviously our events calendar is quite full. Right around the corner, we've got Frankfurt coming up. In addition to Frankfurt, we have a ton of other events coming up that are regional trade shows like NEBA or there's the Heartland Forum coming up as well, too. So these are these are names that I don't necessarily know. So can you expand on them a little bit? New England Independent Booksellers Association. Ah, perfect. Um, and the Heartland Forum is also part, I believe, of ABA. Could be wrong on that. So tell us a little bit about, uh, say, podcast and webcast. What makes, uh, and you're talking with the editor, editors and other people in the office, when do you know that it seems like a good podcast or a good webcast that we would you know, come together and talk about and, and produce? That's a great question, Mark. What we end up doing is we collaborate between the publishers, 
and we collaborate between the editors and then our panelists that are coming on to present the webcast. Um, and that's how we generate the topics, right. and that's how we're going to tailor the discussion um, with these editors from publishing houses and with the editors here inside of the Publishers Weekly offices to craft a great topic mm-hmm. based around a particular type of genre. So whether that be cookbooks or whether that be um, sci-fi or whether that be technology. Um, And we pull in the experts from those fields to come in and really craft a great webcast experience. It's a visual experience. It's an audio experience. There's live Q&A. You can chat with us there. Uh, It's just an overall, it's a great experience to come on and and learn something new that maybe you haven't learned before, get some insider information, like I pointed out before, um, interact with authors that you probably wouldn't be able to interact with. So that's really the successful, um, the level of of success that we have with these webcasts. And what I like about the the webcast is the interactive ability. Um, You know, you've got a couple of, you've got three publishers, and Rose, you've done, I've done a couple, but you seem to do one, once a week oh no it's not not nearly i do one every couple of months maybe yeah. I've, I've done a, a couple of them but i was also going to say that the interactive part is definitely my my favorite part is uh hearing what the, the right. readers have to say and often they'll come up with questions so i think well I, I didn't know readers cared that much about right. that um i i know that we always get a lot of questions about self-publishing right for example in in the genres that i cover whether it's science Absolutely. fiction or romance um and you know when i'm talking sure. with with editors from major publishing houses or with authors who are uh, traditionally published i'll still get these uh, listeners saying well what about self-publishing what about Mm self-publishing it's definitely a topic that's very big on people's minds and so those questions can in some cases give us ideas for future webcasts definitely we we learn a lot of information during these webcasts Uh, and also you know on twitter or facebook because we have a full interactive capabilities with these webcasts so you know it might you know incite uh, another conversation on twitter Um, so there's a lot of offshoots to some of these products as well too where there is maybe if it's not interaction between um, the panelists and the presenters and then the audience maybe it's just interaction between audience members Mm -hmm. Um, so it spawns a lot of questions. It spawns a lot of really great um, interactivity between our uh, our community. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's definitely something that um, really you know enlightens some of the the uh, attendees. Um, yeah. Maybe um, gets them a little angry sometimes. Who knows? You know, you never know. It's true, and and sometimes we can get some very heated discussions on those on those webcast panels. So the webcasts are are panel discussions. We'll we'll have three or four guests, usually sometimes more, um, and then a PW editor who's kind of shepherding them. Yes, along. definitely. <laughs> and then the podcasts are more one on one. It is one on one experience. It's mm-hmm. really um, the editors here in the office. Uh, they'll, they'll read the books. Obviously, what's inside the book, you're already going to find out. And you're already going to know. So the questions really then are what is something about this character or what is something about this plot or you know what is something about um this book that we wouldn't know mm-hmm. you know how did you end up with this character development and we, where did you start from and it gives you a lot of great insider information that mm-hmm. like i said you probably wouldn't be privy to which is one of the excellent parts about the podcast uh series uh, it's just chock full of a bunch of random information that you really want to know 
And uh, it sounds a lot like the author interviews that we do on the radio show right. also. Correct. Yeah. And uh, really, really digging deep, which is so much fun. Yeah. I mean, I trust me, I'm always on the back end of things, which I find enjoyable um, on a production side. Um, so I get to not only work with these authors and these editors here inside of the office, um, but then, you know, I get to see the final result. And it's such a great experience. And it's really rewarding. Um, and so... You know, it's something that I, I'm lucky to get to do. And when do you say, you know, so you're putting together a webinar. Uh, and at one point, do you say, you know what? We should break this out and do a discussion series. Does that ever happen? And what? Uh, talk to us about the discussion series that you've been uh, uh, putting together. Definitely. You know, once again, it's such a great experience because it opens up not only my my knowledge and my information that I get from it, but, you know, you're right. We'll have a conversation or we'll hit a hot topic that's coming up. Um, and then it's like, well, listen, we should probably have a panel about this. Let's right. talk about this some more. Let's 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 see where this is going, where it could go, where it could potentially not go. Um, you know, we've had a lot of things in the past, whether it be Common Core or diversity inside of the publishing industry or salary surveys or publishing seasons, right, you know, are right, they relevant? Right. And so we start having these conversations in office. Maybe it's not even after the webcast or maybe it has nothing to do with it. It could be in an editorial meeting mm-hmm. um, that will spawn this, you know, larger discussion. Um, and so that's where a lot of our topics um, come from. And so, you know, that just kind of snowballs and this whole idea of, okay, now we've got to pull in some, some, uh, some differing point of views, I guess you could say, and let's have a discussion about it, um, which obviously hence the discussion series, which comes with breakfast, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and so and there, we, ha- we, ha- we hold them at Random House in an auditorium, seats about 200 people. And just like with a lot of things, you know, it's, it's not a one-sided situation ever. So we have a panel discussion for about an hour, you know, and then from there what we do is we open it up to the audience. And so we've got a whole array of people from the publishing industry. So whether it be authors or agents mm-hmm. or publishers or HR people, um, editors, you name it, everyone's sitting in this room and we're now having this discussion are there answers that happen all the time? Yes. Is there a final conclusion? Maybe. So we don't really know sometimes, but that's the great experience about it because it gets you thinking in different ways. And so whether it be technology and ebook lending or, you know, like I pointed out before, uh, salaries or discrepancies in salaries in the publishing industry, mm-hmm. we're tackling a lot of very important issues um, that really affect, you know, the entire publishing industry as a whole. It's one of those situations, like I said, I wouldn't normally be able to get to get this kind of background knowledge and information if I didn't have this position. Yeah. Um, so it's been really rewarding for me. And I think for the audience, it's much, much more rewarding um, because it lets them into a side that maybe they don't get to interact with. So, you know, if you're working in editorial, you're probably not maybe going to be working with someone in HR, but you're in a room with them having this conversation now and you're seeing different points of views um, or different angles that, you know, this problem can be tackled with. So it's one of those situations where not only do I get to work with some amazing panelists um, and then obviously some amazing editors, um, but we also get to really 
dive into some really deep issues. Um, and so it's been really rewarding. Um, we've gotten great responses from our attendees. Uh, it's just one of those situations where you're really proud at the end of the day after you've produced something like this. So tell us a little bit about some of the specific upcoming events that we've got going on, the discussions, the webcast, the podcast. Oh, gosh. So obviously we've got ongoing podcast series, um, and they happen either frequently or infrequently, depending upon the genre that you are interested in. We've got um, a kids cast. We launch them usually about every other Tuesday or Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, you can actually check that out, too, in Children's Bookshelf, um, our e-newsletter for uh, kids in YA. And do you have on hand any uh, forthcoming ones? I do. I have. Uh, we have the new adult, a Genre is Born. Uh, Rose Fox is going to be hosting that with a panel of six authors. Wait, I'm sorry, what is this now? Uh, it's the, the new adult genre, um, which has been kind of slotted in between YA and adult. Um, right. It's for uh, you know, a lot of sort of college settings, that kind of thing. And uh, it, it's, it's very, very new. And so the exciting thing for me, uh, as, as Brian said, we're calling it a, a Genre is Born. Uh, I get to talk with these authors who are really getting to shape the genre. It, it's usually with genre writing, you have to conform to the genre. And so it's really mm. kind of fun to be taking it from the other perspective and look at this. I, mean, I think the concept of new adult as a phrase, as a marketing term, uh, is only a few years old. Right. So uh, these these folks are going to really get in on the ground floor and oh. get to have a say in what new adult is so so is this for you know i've been uh, hearing you know, we and we've reported about uh parents who go to bookstores pick up kids pick up the books that their uh their uh teenagers are reading and reading themselves and you know it could be any number of titles it could be even the harry potter but here now are new adult that are, is being written for that for that who who is it? Um, it's it's for college age folks. So right. it, it's adolescence is lasting uh, longer okay. and longer so and longer. Yeah. Um, so once you're out of high school, you are technically out on your own. But in college, it can still be in some ways a very protected environment. Mm-hmm. And so it's that combination of exploration and and right. safety and a lot of new things. Uh, uh, you know, the, all the new things that you associate with being an adult, but you're right. doing them for the very first time. You're learning who you are. You're mm-hmm. learning how to interact with other people as an adult. You're learning about adult responsibilities and pleasures. Right. Um, and for more on that, you'll just have to listen to the webcast. Looking forward. Excellent. Good plug, Rose. <laughs> I, I do my best here. So what else is coming up? Currently, we are uh, working feverishly, as maybe some of our reader or listeners sh- uh, might know. Uh, which is the uh, Frankfurt Book Fair. We do the show daily there. Um, so we will have a booth there um, in Hall A and in 4.2. Um, so if you're going to be in Frankfurt, please swing by and check us out and grab a copy of PW. Um, like I said before, we've got some upcoming regional trade shows as well, too. Uh, so if you're going to be attending any of those, once again, please swing by our booth there. Um, and speaking of self-publishing, we have the self-publishing book expo coming up. That's exciting. Yes, it's very exciting. It's a really fun audience to go and talk to and really help them try to navigate this world of self-publishing and, Mm -hmm. you know, all of the 
all the tools uh, that they will need to really get their self-published works off the ground. Um, you know, we have Book Life, as maybe some people may or may not be aware of, um, which is a whole new thing for Publishers Weekly uh, in helping kind of navigate the self-publishing world. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to be able to uh, present that to them, uh, which will, I'm sure, alleviate a lot of stress. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Yes. Right. And um, how about on the on the podcast side? Are there any particular podcasts coming up? Well, you know, we've got the weekly podcast with Week Ahead. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, More to Come, which is a bi-weekly podcast. Um, as I pointed out, we've got a kids cast. We're launching a new one, actually, uh, in two weeks from uh, tomorrow. Uh, so take a look out for that as well, too. Um, and then as far as some other upcoming podcasts, you'll have to go to publishersweekly.com. Um, and like I said, select one of those genres and check out some of those podcasts. I was just going to ask where it lives on the site. I know we, we're at publishersweekly.com slash radio. Is there a similar section for these? Definitely. Well, if you want the shortened URL, it's publishersweekly.com forward slash webcasts for our webcast series. And for our podcast series, it's publishersweekly.com forward slash podcasts. Well, but if you can't remember easy that, enough. <laughs> I know, um, just go to the homepage. Um, and in the middle of the page, you'll find the icons there. Um, all you gotta do is make one simple click all right well brian thank you so much for joining us it's really nice to have you on the show and to learn a little bit more about the this this family of events well thank you guys for having me it's been a pleasure i've been so excited been waiting to do this so thank you so much and now a final word from our sponsors hi i'm patrick swenson author of the ultra thin man and you're listening to publishers weekly radio And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Diane Ackerman, author of The Human Age. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. And also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Uh, Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 